welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you've had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus. That's our subscriber section. We really appreciate all of you who are supporting this work. Counterpunch has been around almost 30 years. We plan to be around many, many, many more years to provide left-wing analysis of all the things going on in the world. Right now, we're in the middle of a fun drive. We really, really appreciate all of our supporters who have already donated to help keep the lights on, help pay for our web hosting and all of the other costs that come up when you're trying to do this sort of work. Go over to counterpunch.org, give your donation today, help keep Counterpunch going and help keep this left uh, analysis coming as regularly as it does. So with that said, I want to turn to my guest today. She's been on the show a number of times already, so very happy to have her back. Yasamin Mather is with me. The organization I would point your attention to, Hands Off the People of Iran, very, very important uh, work that Yasamin has been doing for years now. Yasamin is I guess probably one of the voices that I always look for when trying to understand what's going on in Iran. And of course, it's no surprise to anybody that we're talking here uh, about the protests and the ongoing social movement in Iran. So Yasamin Mather, welcome back to Counterpunch. Thank you for inviting me. So if we could just, let's just begin with the obvious question, Yasamin. Let's talk about the protest movement in Iran. Maybe you want to help us understand how it began, but most importantly, help us to understand the character of this movement. Who's in the streets? What are they doing? And how does it relate to maybe movements of protests that we've seen in Iran in prior years? Okay, so the protests obviously were initiated, started, if you like, after the death of Masa Amini, a young girl, Kurdish. She was visiting Tehran with her relatives. The uh, uh, morality police arrested her because her hijab wasn't perfect, and she died in custody. But I think, and the first demonstrations were specifically about hijab, and young girls, girl students, school students joined these protests. But then it grew much bigger and it, it now engulfs various sections of the population for who for various reasons uh, don't like the current government in Iran. And um, the, you can still say that in the demonstrations, women are playing a prominent role, but it's not just women. Now, why did women take such a um, step? It wasn't, again, just about hijab. The economic hardship has affected women probably in some ways more than everybody else because uh, unemployment is higher amongst women. Unemployment is high in the country because of sanctions, because of corruption, because of mismanagement, but women face far worse levels of unemployment. This is an educated um, uh, group. Uh, women are, go to university, 60% of university students are women, and yet they don't get the jobs at the end of their higher education. They might get temporary jobs, they might get black market jobs. But also, I think the rising prices, the high rate of inflation has affected women as people who have to feed the entire family. So they have this dual responsibility of, on the one hand, bringing the extra 
income by doing any job they can find because of uh, the economic hardship. But then they have to deal with long queues to find basic foods because there's shortage of foods. They have to find the funds to feed their children, their families, their husband. Very often they're looking maybe after an elderly person as well. So for women, the economic hardships of the last few years has become a real problem. It's not just, um, if you like, the headscarves that is the issue here. And once the demonstrations grew, and I think the young showed a lot of courage in that they didn't have the... They had nothing to lose in some ways. When the young showed the courage, the demonstrations spread far wider than anyone expected. I certainly didn't expect them to be in almost every small town. You look at a town in southeast Iran, there's as big a demonstration as there is in Sanandaj or in Tehran. But these demonstrations are dispersed. They're not nationally organized. So we have to remember that um, it's grown spontaneously, if you like. There is no plot, no plan there. So can you tell me a little bit about the uh, economic class dimension of this? And I mean that because with an eye towards, for instance, a number of protests that we've seen in Iran in prior years, I think of 2009 in particular in the green movement, which really was centered among the uh, the affluent, the affluent of Tehran, the, um, you know, the economic, maybe I shouldn't say elites, but the bourgeois elements of society. What about these protests? How do we have a class analysis of them? Okay, I would say that the average of the population involved in these protests is far uh, poorer. It's skilled working class, teachers, uh, nurses, that kind of people, but in the, increasingly in the last two weeks, um, industrial working class as well. At this stage, between 2009 and this, uh, these protests, we also had, if you like, the the protests against subsidy, uh, abolition of subsidies. And those were from the poorest sections of the population. At this stage, we see elements of the poorest section of the population getting involved in some of these protests, but you couldn't say these are dominated by the poorest sections of the population. So we are seeing, I would say, uh, lower middle class and working class people involved in these protests. And you can see it from the slogans, you can see it from uh, th- four or five sets of groups of workers have become involved in these protests. They're sugarcane workers who were, for many years, they've been complaining about privatization, non-payment of wages and so on. Last week, we had the petrochemical workers from Asaliye. They got involved with their own slogans, but also, if you like, anti, political anti-repression slogans. We've had um, the bus workers, Bahed bus workers, some of whose leaders are in prison, or in fact in Evin prison, which was, as you know, had this fire on Sunday, on Saturday. Um, so we have 
elements of the working class, the teachers' union, the syndicate of Iranian teachers, is heavily involved in these protests. So we are seeing a different category of people from 2009. I would say that's one difference. And the other difference with 2009 is that in 2009, we saw bigger demonstrations, if you like, in, one, in major cities we saw, but they weren't as widespread as these protests. I, they didn't cover the whole of the country in little, small, but quite effective protests. And the leadership of that protest, Musavi, Karubi, Zahra, Rahnavar, were part of the Islamic Republic. So although they were upset because the elections had been rigged according to them and they wanted justice for the election, they didn't want to challenge the existence of the Islamic Republic. So if you like, they stopped slogans. They didn't want slogans against Ayatollah Khamenei. While these protests are more spontaneous, people are tired, we are um, more than a decade later, there's been far more uh, financial hardship on ordinary people, and their slogans reflect what is clearly an anger amongst ordinary people about the current situation. For a host of reasons also, Iran was hit pretty hard with COVID. So I just want to ask you about COVID and is there a role of COVID and the effects of COVID both, I mean, medically, but I mean, more importantly, the social effects of COVID in the, you know, 12, 18 months since, uh, norm, you know, a normal life has sort of returned to Iran? Yeah, I think there was, um, well, normal life um, only returned much later, partly because Iran had longer um, stint of COVID than most uh, European or uh, North American countries. So what they called the fifth wave was going on as late as summer of to, or late spring of 2022, which was quite late. So, And you are right. This was a period where uh, there was a lot of um, uh, hardship for ordinary people. In addition to sanctions, there were medical difficulties. Originally, Iran said they didn't want Western vaccines. They were relying on Chinese vaccines. There was the inevitable rumor, which was probably wrong, that the, the vaccines didn't work. And so that created its own chaos and dissatisfaction. I'm sure the vaccines were okay. But in general, um, the medics did a fantastic job. Every Iranian you speak to will tell you that uh, they owe their lives or their relatives' lives to the heroic work of the medics. But the state didn't come out of it very well, to be honest. And in the middle of all this, we had this presidential election. As you know, uh, uh, more or less the reformists had given up by that stage. I don't know if they thought they they were so unpopular, there was no point standing. Or, but anyway, there was no uh, reformist, no serious reformist candidate. So let's talk a little bit about the government then. What uh, walk us through the government's response to these protests? And it's, I think, at least from my, uh, you know, um, observations, it seems to be some sort of multifaceted kind of a tension between letting the people blow off steam and bringing hard repression and kind of walking the line between these two. So can you describe how the government has responded and more importantly, maybe how the people have responded to the government's response? Okay, so initially, 
Raisi um, found the family of the girl who was killed and uh, said, oh, it's almost like my own daughter has died and I will pursue this and so on. The official inquiry hasn't been great. After three weeks, they decided no one had anything to answer, that it was injuries in her childhood, in her youth, that led to this event, which hasn't helped. Because obviously, if you promise an inquiry, if you say, we are sorry about this and so on, then you reverse it. It doesn't go down well. The Supreme Leader says these are all... um, uh, plots by the US, Israel, um, Saudi Arabia, foreigners, foreign radio stations. And to be honest, it, you don't need to be, um, you know, you don't need to be too clever. If you look at what's happening, you can tell that these people, the kind of people who are on the street, couldn't have possibly been motivated by radio stations from abroad or TV stations or social media from abroad. These are people who are using their own slogans, they're expressing their own feelings. It's nothing to do with uh, Iran has enemies. I'm not denying that Iran has enemies. But if you look at the way these protests have developed, you can tell they're genuine. And um, you're you're probably right that in, in some stages they thought oh, these are school students, we, can, we don't need to worry about it, and so on. And then they faced the fact that this wasn't just students and school students. People joined these protests. And especially, I think, once the uh, working class got involved, they got even more worried, more concerned about this. Um, so we have scenes where, for example... Uh, senior education officials go to a high school to preach to the young students, um, the young school students, pupils, that they should uh, wear the hijab, why they should wear the hijab. And these children, or teenagers basically, push these people out of their school, out of their um, area, and they say, no, we are not going to listen to you. So that has been the reaction when the government has tried to uh, if like patronize the protesters. But then we have had severe repression. There are some very bad examples. Zahedan in Baluchistan is one example where we don't know how many people have died, but quite a lot of people, dozens probably, died in Zahedan. Then Last Sunday, we had the attack on Sharif University. Sharif is one of the most prominent universities, one of the best technology universities, at least uh, in most of Asia, if not the world. And they attacked the students. They forced them into um, uh, dormitories and into the parking area. There are a number of people who've been arrested in Sharif University. I'm sure some people died. But again, the curtailment of the internet makes it very difficult to have precise numbers. And then we had Sanandaj, again, um, um, a town near where Masa was born. She's from Sakhris in Kurdistan. Sanandaj, there was uh, quite a battle between the security forces and ordinary people last week. And the whole thing continues. And of course, now we are talking of 200 deaths. I think that's the figure most people agree on. It's probably more, but I think with 200, we 
we could say there are 200 deaths. That's excluding what happened in Evin, where the government says eight prisoners died, but the opposition is saying more people died. Once you have that number of deaths, obviously the stakes are much higher. People are more angry. They're showing more um, uh, radicalism in, their, in the way they deal with the whole issue. And so the protests are getting um, more aggressive. Now, some people, even on the left, are saying, oh, the demonstrators should stick to peaceful means and so on. I disagree. It's not the demonstrators who show non-peaceful means. You know yourself, if you're in a demonstration, it's usually the state and the security forces that show violence. And of course, you can uh, sit and get wait until they arrest you, but obviously you try and run away, or if you have something in your hand, you might throw it to get uh, away from the people who are arresting you. So these calls for peaceful means of um, dealing with the protesters really don't mean much to, as far as I can see. So yeah, I think we are seeing an escalation of the whole protest. Last night, I think people used darkness to go because they don't want to be identified. There's been so many arrests. So according to what I read this morning, lots of people were demonstrating in the darkness after, uh, after the nightfall. One important question that always comes up when talking about Iran and events in Iran is the perspective of the very large and influential Iranian diaspora. So I'm wondering um, if you could help us understand the various perspectives coming from the diaspora. Obviously, there are those on the left, such as yourself, that would be in the diaspora. There are monarchists and you know those that want the return of the Shah and so forth. So can you give us a, a little bit of a, a sampling of what the diaspora is saying? Yes, uh, unfortunately, this diaspora now includes quite a lot of former supporters of the Islamic Republic who, having reached mainly United States and Canada, I should say, are now royalists, which is quite a quite a amusing, but was um, in some ways sad <laughs> scenario as well. So. So the royalists' main spokespeople are actually people who were very close to the Islamic Republic until four or five years ago, some of them 10 years ago, right? Um, there's a lot of debate inside Iran. Why do some of the reformists become monarchists as soon as they go into exile, which is quite an interesting sociological study. But monarchists, it's not just them, it's who supports them. So Saudi Arabia is funding the monarchists. Saudi Arabia uh, finances a 24-7 TV station, which constantly shows wonderful films of how great it was during the Shah's time. And those of us who remember the Shah's time know how fake news all of that is. Uh, and then we have um, the um, uh, Israeli, pro-Israeli, TV stations. We also have, again, Saudi Arabia and neocon Republicans financing Mujahideen Khalq. If you remember, they were the religious group who still wear their headscarves fully, I should add, uh, in Albania, where they are in exile, where the US agreed with the Iraqi occupation government that they should all go to um, uh, Albania. 
So, yes, we have these, and they are terrible, and they have been waging protests in support of Iranian women. They don't even, you know, these people, have, some of them have been in exile for so long. This is their revenge time, if you like. I think we, I'm not too worried about their protests because inside Iran, I hear almost in every demonstration slogans against the Shah. So we see the students at Sharif University, Isfahan University, Yazd University, school children, street protests saying, no to Shah, no to Rahbar. Rahbar is Khamenei. Right or no to dictatorship, be it the Shah or the Rahbar. So that massive publicities and such huge sums that the Saudi royal family has spent on this trashy TV station is going completely to waste. And I have great pleasure every time I hear these kind of no to Shah slogans inside Iran. But outside Iran, it's different. So if you look at Countries where leftist refugees are more numerous, like Sweden, Denmark, the diaspora has been uh, protesting, but giving the slogans of the protesters inside Iran. But I'm sure in Washington, D.C. or New York, where not everyone is obviously a royalist or mojahedin, but there is quite a, 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 an established community of Iranian-Americans who are pro neoconservative who were pro-Trump. Let's not forget they all supported Trump because they saw Trump will bring regime change from above. Uh, all of, in those places, you do see the royalists taking advantage of this situation in the demonstrations. Well, and you mentioned Trump, and I'm going to bring up his name in a few minutes. But before we can get to the orange slime, let's discuss very quickly Biden and the current uh, regime that's in, in, in power in the United States. Um, what, if any, effect does this protest movement have on the moves by the Biden administration to kind of walk back away from the Trump period and try to return to the Obama era uh, uh, JCPOA or something similar to that, the, you know, the so-called Iran nuclear deal. Um, there's been talk about this from the very moment that Biden entered into office, that this was one of the principal uh, areas that the Biden administration was looking at making uh, progress. So where does that stand vis-a-vis -vis these protests and everything swirling around in Iran? Okay, so Biden administration restarted the negotiations. There were rounds of it in Vienna, three, four rounds. I've lost count. It was becoming a long saga. So since, I would say, the first few months of the Biden administration, we had these talks. They came to a standstill on a number of occasions the Europeans mediated and restarted it. But the last time they came to a stop was summer of 2022. And since then, there's been almost a standstill. Now, my understanding is that Blinken, Secretary of State, said last week, oh, we are no longer concerned about JCPOA. We are concerned about the protest, which is very dangerous statement because let's hope they are not thinking of regime change through coup d'etat or some color revolution or whatever, because they know they can't win a war against such a vast country. But we don't know... Um, what other um, means they might use for regime change. So that is a worrying thing. 
to be fair, some of the demands that the Iranian government was making, whether the Iranian government had decided there's no point in a nuclear deal or not, some of the demands the Iranian government was making were impossible for Biden or any U.S. administration to accept. One of which was, and I can understand why the Iranian government was making that demand, but I can also understand why it was a bit too much to ask. So the Iranian government, punished by the fact that Trump walked out of JCPOA in 2018 and left the country in a serious situation, the currency dropped tens of times. I mean, it was disaster economically. Um, they wanted a clause in the New Deal that no future U.S. administration will ever walk away from JCPOA. And I don't think any administration in the U.S. can make such a promise because who knows, you know, in 2024, the Republicans would might be back in power. Trump might be back in power. So I think something on, I don't know whether this was a deliberate attempt by Iran not to go fully for this, despite the fact that Raisi as well, during his election campaign, was saying, I want the JCPOA to work, right? So both presidents were saying they wanted to work. And yet, a year and three months after Raisi's election, more than two years after Biden's presidency, we don't have a deal. And uh, I think that, in a way, is also affecting the mood in Tehran. There is a mood of despair in Iran. Right? That despair, um, in early summer, there was hope that the Europeans were saying we are inches from signing a deal. That hope uh, had appeared that sanctions might be relaxed and therefore the economic situation might improve. And once that hope turned into despair, I think that didn't help the situation for the Iranian government either. Now, I want to focus our attention in our conversation on Iran, but it bears a little bit of analysis in talking about Trump and Iran in the context of Saudi Arabia. As you already mentioned, Saudi Arabia finances these TV channels, pushes uh, anti-regime propaganda, etc., the Saudis are also spending billions of dollars trying to get Trump back into office. This is very clear to those of us in the United States that are watching all of this. The entire LIV golf tournament seems to be some kind of multi-billion dollar scheme to funnel money to Trump from the Saudis. Um, so I guess the question is, and maybe I'm off base here, but wouldn't the Iranian government have all the motivation in the world to get a deal done quickly? Uh, before Trump can be, you know, shoehorned back into office? And if so, wouldn't it be counterproductive to put that kind of a demand into their proposal? You are right. And as I said, I don't know. Maybe this, is, this wasn't the stumbling block. Remember that these talks are in secret. So all I know is what the Europeans are putting out, what the Iranian government is saying. So maybe there were other issues that stop this. For example, the US's insistence about the level of uranium enrichment or what will happen to uranium that is already enriched. So there are all sorts of other reasons why these talks fail. 
there was originally a push to get these talks finished before November's, your um, midterm elections. And in a way, that made sense because presumably Biden doesn't want, doesn't know what will happen. Um, and this time, the Biden administration wants to take JCPOA to Congress and Senate. And if he loses majority, or if there's a big gap in the majority, then there's no chance that he will get JCPOA passed. So you are right, and I think Iran is aware. But I think there is a there was a time maybe towards the end of the Trump era where Iran decided, um, well, we've done all we can to be with the West. They don't want us, so maybe we should side with Russia and China. I mean, that could be an explanation. I, I'm not saying that's the only explanation, but there is, if you like, um, Khamenei seems to imply that uh, he is ready to sack um, what is called the um, drink the poison of signing a deal, right? This is the term used by Khomeini when he agreed to the Iraq peace deal. So he's saying, I'm ready to make a big sacrifice and sign this. But yet there is also a reluctance to do so. And you are absolutely right. I think um, Saudi Arabia is spending a lot of money. The fact that they're actually standing up, if you like, against Biden, uh, regarding production of oil, they are uh, encouraging OPEC countries to reduce um, oil production, which will inevitably make the situation in at least Europe far worse than it is now. You can see signs that the Saudis um, are, uh, despite Biden's humiliating trip to <laughs> Riyadh and shaking hands with the murderer and so on, but despite all that, um, I think there is um, there's clearly a sign that Saudis want to do that. Um, I have no idea whether it will succeed or not, uh, but yeah, that would be a terrible scenario for the world, I would imagine. You mentioned Russia. Obviously, everything going on in the world right now is connected in some way, directly or indirectly, to Russia's war in Ukraine. Uh, just in the last 48 hours, Iran has popped up in Ukraine-Russia headlines because of the Iranian drones that have been used in attacking Kiev. Uh, Iran has... Uh, had some, I guess, high profile sales of these drones to the Russians. So can you talk a little bit about the position of Iran uh, in, I guess, in the middle of all of this between Russia on the one hand and uh, Europe and the West on the other hand? And what is, in your view, what is Iran's strategy vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? I mean, selling drones is one thing, but coming out clearly in one camp or the other is something different. So how do you view Iran uh, relative to Ukraine? When Putin visited uh, Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei told him, you did well, you did well to attack um, because um, you surprised them. And if you hadn't done this, you would have been attacked. And I think that was a genuine feeling as far as he's concerned. He was expressing his, his, what he believes. Um, and Iran has had good relations with Russia since Syria, basically. And there is talk now that the um, elevation of this general, um, uh, Sergei, I can't remember his surname, who was the commander in Syria and is now in charge of the Ukraine war efforts, has 
um, if you like, rekindled that whole cooperation between uh, revolutionary guards and the Russian army's um, attacks in Ukraine. I'm not, I don't know, because as you know, this war has so many fake news from both sides. It's very difficult to assess exactly what is happening. But uh, one thing is clear, Iran, the Islamic Republic's leaders, Raisi and Khamenei, have not uh, hidden or have not been quiet in their support for Putin. They've been very clear they support Putin. Um, the drones, it's interesting because we knew about the drones having been sold a few weeks ago. The CIA put it out, the, MI, um, the intelligence services in the UK said this was the case and so on. And then we had contradictory reports. So some people in the West, contradictory, all of them from the Western press. So in the Western press, some people were saying, oh, these were great, they, um, this is what Russia is winning with these drones and so on. And others were saying they're completely useless. They don't have the right range. They don't have the right um, intelligence in terms of finding the, uh, the target and so on. So I'm, I have no idea how good or bad these drones are, but you're absolutely right that today we are hearing that the kamikaze drones that, arrived, that fell on Kyiv today were Iranian ones. So I don't know. It raises the larger question, really anytime we talk about Russia in the context of Iran, it raises the larger question of how exactly Iran and Russia relationship should be understood. Because on the one hand, it seems in some ways that they're natural geopolitical uh, allies. I mean, they have common enemies in the West. They have, uh, for various reasons that I probably don't have to explain, they have a common set of interests. At the same time, economically, they're obviously rivals. I mean, they're both petro uh, exporters. They're both uh, really heavily reliant on uh, those those exports to basically fund everything that the state does. And so it seemed almost a natural opportunity for Iran to seize on the loss that Russia had with regard to the world markets after the oil embargo, the price caps, the sanctions, everything else. And yet for other maybe countervailing reasons, Iran stayed aligned with Russia and China. So how do you understand the oil question as it relates to Iran and Russia and their sort of friendliness slash oppositional relationship? Well, it's very interesting what you're saying, because at the time when the JCPOA talks collapsed, inside Iran, some people were saying it's all the fault of Russia. Russia has covered these talks because had the talks led to a conclusion, this was after the Ukraine invasion had started, so obviously there was already talk of shortage of fuel in Europe. Uh, had the talks uh, succeeded, Iran could get involved in um, selling oil to West European countries. That would reduce the price of oil and Russia will be affected by this. It's very hard to say because I think the strategic relation is not with Russia, but is with China. And here... Um, I think Iran has been forced because Iran was very keen for better relations with Europe, with United States. But 
the United States has pushed it so far that it now sees itself within that camp, whether it wanted it or not. Now that is where it is. And the events of the last few months has pushed it further into that camp. In those circumstances and the fact that the United States was hesitant. Now, some people say Biden had no intention. He'd done the propaganda about the nuclear deal, but he had no intention of actually signing a nuclear deal. I don't believe that. I don't agree with that analysis. I think Biden was genuinely wanted to do this. But irrespective of that, events that happened in the summer of this year, 2022, led to a situation of standstills that eventually basically has almost broken these talks at a time when they were very close to finalizing. And, and under those circumstances, Iran is pushed into the China-Russia uh, circle of influence. And you can see that that's where it is right now. Things might change. I'm not saying, I think the Iranian government is extremely pragmatic when it comes to situations like that. And things can change very quickly if there is a chance of a renewed JCPOA. But right now, given the protests, given the position taken by Western governments, given um, what Blinken says, that we are no longer interested in JCPOA, I can see Iran being pushed further and further close to Russia and China. It is interesting to think about considering the people of Iran, you know, culturally and, uh, you know, in terms of their sort of social and cultural orientation are much more Western. You know, they're not looking at Russia for cultural cues. They're not looking to China for fashion or for entertainment or anything like this. And so it, it's a complicated picture because one could absolutely see pressure from below to return into a Western, a more Western oriented uh, global community that, as you say, given the events around the world seems an impossibility, at least for the current regime in Iran. You are absolutely right. But as I said, um, there could be a situation where the protests will lead to some kind of um, regime change internally, i.e. A, a change of figureheads, not supreme leader, but president. And you never know. Um, I would say that the current situation and the current leadership are very keen to move now closer to Russia. Well, in the couple of minutes that we have remaining, I want to just ask you a little bit about um, what is the way forward here, both in terms of uh, in Iran. I mean, obviously, I know you can't predict everything that's going to happen, but in terms of the way forward for these protests, what are the main challenges that people who are coming out on the streets courageously protesting, what are the main challenges they're facing now? What is the, maybe one or two of the uh, primary criticisms that you might have of this movement? I would imagine imagine that the leaderless list, you know, the leaderless quality of it is probably one of them. But talk a little bit about the future of this movement and what impact it might have long term in Iran. Okay, I think long term, we can say that it has weakened the regime, it will not lead as it is now to the overthrow of the regime, but it has weakened the regime considerably. There are um, weaknesses to this movement. Uh, the fact that it's spontaneous makes it more agile, more mobile. Um, it happens all over the country at the same time and so on. But it also has the disadvantage that there is no 
nothing serious might come out of it because of its spontaneity. There is the problem that sections of the left are accepting any slogans that is put out by any section of the population. So the slogan, women, life, freedom, has its positive side, but it also has its negative side. Life for whom? Which women? Women of which class? Even in terms of headscarf, it's not the same thing. The upper classes were not at all uh, affected by the morality police, because morality police doesn't go to rich areas. It only deals with middle areas and working class areas. So the two extremes of society weren't involved in this. Um, when you say women, well, quite a lot of the people in the morality police who beat up young girls like Massa are women. So there's women who are revolutionaries and women who are counter-revolutionaries, which women. And then we have, especially from today and some of the traditional kind of ex-pro-Soviet type forces, uh, again, the call for a united front against dictatorship, i.e. let's forget about our differences. I don't know if this united front should include monarchists and Mujahideen as well, but the slogan is there. Let's unite. Let's not talk about our divisions. Let's all fight dictatorship. Well, we all fought together the dictatorship of the Shah and what a mess was created after that. What a terrible mess the left found itself afterwards. So this unity with all is very, if you like, people like to say it, but then what does it mean and what will it lead to? So these are the dangers of the movement. There is also a danger of people, especially abroad, people are saying, oh, intervene, add sanctions, do that, do that. All of this is worse for the protesters. The protesters are already accused of being foreign agents. If Biden, every time Biden or Blinken or Macron or anybody else opens their mouth, they're endangering people inside Iran. I wish they would shut up. We don't want their support. But the support from ordinary people, for trade unions, from workers' organizations, from radio stations like yours, from women's organizations, is welcome because that is from below. Um, and the Islamic Republic knows, for example, people on the left who've made Angela Davis Chomsky. I'm, I'm not a fan of Israelism, but the fact that these people have made statements, that's positive. But Blinken, no, thank you, please stay out. And increasing sanctions will not help. Sanctions in general have helped the Islamic Republic leaders to become richer, more powerful, more aggressive. The more money they have, the more aggressive they can be. And it's inevitable that sanctions against a dictatorship uh, in a country where uh, power and economy is in the hands of very few senior ayatollahs and their close allies, civilian allies, uh, sanctions benefit them It doesn't, it, and harms ordinary people. So none of these will work, and obviously military attack will be a disaster. Hands Off the People of Iran is the organization. Please make sure you go online and uh, support it, follow it, and uh, give whatever support you can. Yasemin Mather, as always, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us on Counterpunch. We always really appreciate your incisive commentary and analysis. Thank you again. Thank you very much for inviting me. Mm-hmm.